the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Is this a good time to venture back into cryptos? And which cryptos specifically? Bitcoin appears to have formed a bottom at around $20,000, which is an important technical level. That's the high water market reached in December 2017 before entering the 2018 bear market. But just when we thought Bitcoin and Ethereum were showing signs of maturity and that volatility was a thing of the past, Ethereum went ahead and lost 80% of its value and Bitcoin about 70%. Ethereum has since bounced back 60% from its recent low and Bitcoin is up about 20% in the last month. Are we at the start of the next big push up or are we likely to see some false starts along the way? Well, joining us to explore this is Rob Price, founder of Sound Money Capital and formerly head of asset allocation at Alexander Forbes. Sound Money Capital is a digital asset investment firm. And Rob joins us from LA. Welcome, Rob. This is your first time on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Uh, maybe kick off and just give us your opinion about that introduction. Would you agree that Bitcoin has formed a bottom and could we be at the start of the next big push up? Thanks, Kieran. It's uh, great to be here with you. Yeah, I mean, just before going directly into the short term, I do think it's important to briefly pull back the, the lens and just note that you know, digital decentralized scarcity is a powerful uh, innovation, particularly, of course, in the context of the extreme monetary fragility that is being displayed in developed economies at the moment. And, you know, long-term allocations to this asset class have paid dividends for most investors. And so that that longer-term context is just always important to to draw before we talk about anything, you know, too short a term, because, Having too short a term focus can detract value because um, the bigger picture here, here is far more important than just the short term volatility. I must, you know, like to tell people that sometimes I think the the volatility is distracting people from really the the what's important and what's actually going on below the surface, which is you know potentially a monetary regime change. But yeah, listen, that being said, I know some of your, your viewers uh, are experienced investors who do focus on the, the shorter term trends. So I'm you know, happy to talk about them. Uh, you know, before going into them, also must just note, there's obviously not, <laughs> not financial advice. Um, you know, I often do write those articles also, I mean, of course, for, uh, you know, my investors, but also for myself, just to think through a lot of these ideas. Uh, but yeah, getting into some of those ideas, what are we seeing in the markets today? I think that, uh, you know, macro conditions in traditional financial markets are a critical driver of uh, of crypto markets. And um, I think we are approaching some sort of bottoming there uh, with the, the liquidity uh, trends uh, that, of course, are caused by the by the Federal Reserve. So if you look at things like, you know, uh, real interest rates, uh, they look like they're probably starting to top out. If you look at the yield curve, uh, that you know it looks like there's not a lot more uh, flattening there, and that just suggests to you those are you know those are two key macroeconomic indicators in traditional financial markets. They suggest that you know we're we're the the the, the toughest part of the liquidity cycle is probably uh, behind us, and you also get you know corroborating evidence of that when you look at the Fed. Uh, they are starting to talk a little bit more. 
uh, dovishly. They're starting to lay the groundwork for interest rate cuts, which could very well be coming in, in 2023. Um, the market is already moving to to price that, and that's on the on the traditional financial market side. But also, of course, when you look within crypto itself, there are some encouraging signals that are starting to emerge. Uh, you know, things like the the percentage of holdings of Bitcoin that are held by long term holders that is that is changing. It's a really important dynamic uh, that the the holders of Bitcoin. Are, are changing hands. It's shifting towards longer-term holders that have a longer-term perspective, uh, less likely to trade the asset and sell it over the short term. And historically, has been a factor which uh, has is is correlated and related to um, better subsequent returns. Other factors that are also encouraging things like you know capitulation. You know, we've, we've I'm sure you've been speaking you know on your show about uh, capitulation taking place in the markets when you see things like you know three arrows capital and Celsius going into liquidation. You know, this causes forced sellers, and I mean these are probably all you know terms of jargon, but yeah, trying to simplify it. Yeah, you know, pressured entities that are forced to take action uh, and capitulate on some of their their holdings. Those uh, forced sellers can often, you know, mark the bottom of cycles. And um, you know, if you look on chain, you get once again corroborating evidence of that. That uh, you know, realized losses are uh, are high at the moment doesn't mean that they can't get get deeper and listen with all of these factors none of these <laughs> none of these are certainly going to predict price over the short term and listen nothing is going to certainly predict price over the short term uh, you know no one is um is 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 that uh yeah has that stronger hold on the market all we can do is look at this this body of of evidence and and try and create a, a picture of the future and then risk manage that uh most appropriately going forward uh, and the the other positive uh, that we are starting to see is also from the the Bitcoin miners perspective. It also suggests that we are seeing some capitulation there. You know, miners are a very much a pro-cyclical force because they tend to, you know, store up their Bitcoins during a bull market, having optimistic views of the future, you know, like most participants do. Uh, but then during the, the 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 tougher times when price is declining, they're sitting on that balance sheet. Uh, and as things get particularly tough, they capitulate and sell down on some of those holdings, adding to the weakness in the market. Um, but of course, once they've sold down on their holdings, it's similar to the previous factor that I mentioned. Um, about capitulation, that you, it's, it's, it shows that uh, there's not a lot more selling that is left in the market. Um, so we're at that point. You know, once again, it's important to reiterate that doesn't mean that price can't can't fall lower, but a, a bottom is forming, um, and that's uh, you know that that is that is useful information to to note. Uh, and then just you know quickly on the other side. Because as I said, we, we don't know with certainty exactly what is going to be the outlook over the short term. Um, and it's foolish to uh, believe that one does have such a, a strong um, hold on the future. Factors that make me slightly more cautious is the uptick in leverage that we've seen over recent months, uh, particularly on Ethereum, actually, but both on Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
I mean, that suggests that you, you're seeing big speculators coming into the market. And that's just always, it's a factor within my process that, you know, makes me a little bit cautious. doesn't mean that I think that, you know, price is going to, you know, fall, fall out the bottom, but um, it's just something to be cautious about, right? You, you're getting leveraged uh, players coming in and speculating on a price increase. Uh, and that leverage can get unwound just as quickly as it's, as it's put on. Uh, so that's just something to be aware of. Uh, and then other th uh, the other factor that I also am watching quite closely at the moment is, uh, and it's probably the other side to the coin to the leverage, is uh, looking at on-chain activity. Uh, because really what you want to see in a, in a blockchain it, 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 as a sign of health is that it is being used on chain for activity that people are actually using that that blockchain uh, and at the moment the on-chain activity is still pretty weak um you know ideally over the coming you know months you want to see that picking up and that uh providing some signs of confirmation that uh you know the bottom is is truly behind us so yes we, we're approaching a bottom uh, you know, but I would be cautious about just, uh, you know, forecasting a, a quick return to all time highs as a, as an example. Um, you know, one always needs to be humble about these markets and, you know, approach them in a kind of a balance of probabilities rather than uh, thinking that one knows the, the future with certainty. Right. I just want to add a point on that because I recently wrote an article for MoneyWeb on this this factor of the costs of mining. And this is something that's monitored by, I think it's Manchester University. And what has happened with Bitcoin, it's a very useful indicator. The price of Bitcoin seldom goes much below the cost of production. And this is pretty much akin to gold mining, where, you know, when you have prices of gold drop, you're going to get these marginal producers that just stop production for a while. When prices go up, they re-enter the market. And the, the cost of mining Bitcoin per this study was a little bit more than $17,000. It's a bit lower than I thought. I thought it was closer to $24,000. But uh, what you found very quickly was Bitcoin price actually dropped briefly close to that level and then bounced a little bit from that. So that, there does seem to be some sort of uh, parallels there between gold mining and Bitcoin mining. This is, of course, one indicator. The, the, the others that you mentioned, the liquidity and the on-chain analysis as well. But if I can just talk quickly about your company, and I looked at your website, soundmoney.capital, and you have a quote up there saying, it's Bitcoin is, or cryptos are a technological revolution comparable with the steam engine or the internet, and that Bitcoin may have an important role to play in the future of money and is a potential solution to society's biggest challenges. There is a compelling investment and ethical case for investing in Bitcoin and decentralized cryptocurrencies. Maybe just explain what you mean by that and just focus in on you see this as the future of money, potentially. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a couple of points there. I think that um, it, it's always useful to see uh, Bitcoin and crypto as a technology. And even if you pull back the lens even further, I mean, money itself, it is just a technology that facilitates uh, trade and savings. And, um, you know, Bitcoin itself was the first advent of digital scarcity. Um, and it has these monetary qualities, uh, which imply that it could have a role to play as a monetary technology going forward. And the evidence suggests that 
you know, it is already playing that role. Sure, it's not a perfect money because, of course, it's volatile. So it's not great as a as a medium of exchange and a unit of account. But it's very useful as a store of value. But yeah, thinking about it as a technology is is very uh, useful because um, it can pull back the the lens and and make us less focused on all of the the volatility and the investment case over the short term. The other component that I think you you're probably wanting me to get out is this 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 argument that I make that it's a there's a compelling ethical case as well as an in, investment case. And I mean, I'll try and keep it short because I could talk about this for for hours, but it basically requires one to just have an understanding of what the consequences are of our existing monetary regime, right? Where we have, you know, fiat currencies that have uh, no linkage to anything tangible in the real world, and they have no limit on the quantum that we can create of them. Let me just point out there's a, a clear difference between the quantum of money, of course, and wealth. Uh, you know, the, the Federal Reserve or the, the South African Reserve Bank could theoretically increase the quantum of money. They could double the quantum of money, you know, overnight if they really wanted to. Uh, but that doesn't, of course, have any necessarily any impact on wealth. Um, but yes, we have these monetary systems where there is large supplies and it's easy for central banks to create more supply and there are consequences to these actions and it's not just in cpi inflation so central banks will tell you and you know traditional economists will tell you that the only consequence of increasing the money supply is getting cpi inflation i think that is a big uh, mistake and this this concept is really critical for people to understand um, because yeah, there are wider consequences. Once again, I'll try and keep it short, but as a few quick examples so that I, you know, that you get where I'm going with this idea. You know, one I think that's pretty easy to understand is inequality. And not us, and I don't think that we're ever going to live in a world that's completely equal, uh, or that's a, you know, a world that we should try and work towards. That's probably a little bit socialist, a little bit communist. And I'm not sure that's particularly effective, but I do think that the monetary regime actually enhances inequality. And that's a big problem in the world today. Um, and it's easy to see if you think about, you know, lowering interest rates, loosening monetary policy that creates this big quantum of money. Where does that go? That money finds expression somewhere or the evidence shows us over the last 10 years is that money has found expression in asset prices in particular, you know, equity markets and bond markets and property markets. And that of course benefits certain people, the people who hold those assets. Um, nothing nefarious about, about that. That's just the, the way it is, right? Certain people who hold property, who hold equities, they benefit. The prices have gone up. That's exactly what they're looking for. But on the other side of the aisle, you've got people who don't hold those assets. Uh, they're trying to get on the property ladder. They're trying to save for their <laughs> for their future, and they're finding it difficult, right? Because equity markets are expensively valued, even with the corrections we've seen over over the last six months. Equity markets are still expensively valued historically. Property markets are expensively valued historically. So, a clear example here that there's a connection between the monetary regime and the easy way that central banks can create bigger quantums of money and inequality in society. So that's why I make the argument that 
we do really need to move towards sounder versions of money where they are governed by principles. And of course, Bitcoin is a, is a, is a clear example of that, where it's a very principled version of money. It's very difficult to corrupt uh, the supply and change the supply. And I believe that you know, that would be a, a better foundation for a monetary system than, than the one that exists today. And that this shift towards these decentralized assets actually has a, a, an ethical case uh, for us to be you know, critically aware of, not just the compelling investment case. You recently wrote an article that crypto investing is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think people, you've already kind of alluded to this fact that Bitcoin is moving into longer term stable hands and you're getting a bit of a shakeout, what you call capitulation of people who are trying to limit their losses. But when you start to look at this as a marathon, not a sprint, you're less concerned with short-term volatility. Maybe briefly summarize the case you made for long-term investment in Bitcoin. And just as a second part of that, are you a Bitcoin maximalist to the exclusion of other potentially interesting coins that may be out there or may come along in the future? Yeah, there's a number of different ways to kind of approach the uh, investment case for Bitcoin. But for me, I think the most critical one is tied into you know some of the, the the points we've chatted about here that if you look at our current monetary regime there is a chance i think a reasonable chance that it changes going forward uh, there's historical precedents for this we've had lots of different historical monetary re regimes in the world uh you know the portuguese and the spanish and the, the british all had uh, various global monetary regimes but even in the last hundred years the monetary regime has changed you know pre-world war ii we had a gold standard Post-World War II, we had a pseudo-gold standard. And post-1972, 1973, we've had this dollar reserve standard. So clearly, monetary regimes change, and we should expect them to change again in the future. And um, there's strong evidence that we are approaching some sort of change. When you look at interest rates and you look at debt levels, which are at absolute extremes, uh, and over and above that, you know, the global economy is about to go into a recession in 2022, uh, and the Fed has only increased you know, interest rates at 2.5%. So clearly, there's something awry with the monetary regime. I expect it to change. I'm not saying that it's 100% you know, guaranteed that it all goes to, to crypto and Bitcoin, but clearly, Bitcoin and crypto, I think, have a role to play, an important role to play. As I mentioned earlier, they have these important monetary characteristics. So if one puts these ideas together and you just probabilistically think about it, you know, even if you think that the probability of Bitcoin and crypto only has a, you know, 1% chance to play in the future, your expected value of a potential investment into Bitcoin and crypto is is inordinately high, even at very low probabilities. Uh, because of course, if the world were to be on a Bitcoin standard or a crypto standard, then um, the the these assets would be orders of magnitude higher in price and value than where they are today. Uh, so that's the way I, I think. I think for me, that's the most compelling long term uh, case uh, for for Bitcoin and crypto. Coming to your question about maximalism i mean it's yeah it's a very very interesting one i think quite topical uh these days so i'm not a, a bitcoin maximalist but i do think that a lot of people underappreciate the value of bitcoin even within crypto markets themselves so i am a 
as you can see, you know, I'm deeply focused on money, the importance of money and the negative impacts that our current money has on the world today. And I think that Bitcoin and crypto's most important use case is creating a sounder monetary regime. I don't think that the rest of crypto is, is nonsense. You know, the way I would summarize that is that the rest of crypto is, is applying the concept of digital scarcity, which was pioneered by Bitcoin in other realms. And that is interesting. But I don't think that those use cases are necessarily as powerful as money itself. It doesn't mean that they're useless. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in them. Um, but that's the way that I think about it. And that's why I will often focus most of my attention on Bitcoin. I will certainly always encourage newcomers to focus their, their attention on understanding the principles in Bitcoin because I think that that is the most important for us as both individuals, but communities going forward. We, we, we deeply need a sound monetary regime. And there is a risk of us getting too focused on these in kind of inverted commas, very interesting use cases that aren't necessarily as powerful for society over the long term. Just on that point, we recently had the economist Davi Roert on the podcast, and he said that all fiat currencies are ultimately doomed. They inflate away their value until something better comes along. I guess from what you're saying, you're pretty much in agreement with that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Davi's obviously phrased that in a, in a very firm way. And I, um, yeah, I'm not in deep disagreement with him. I think that, you know, I probably talk about these things in a slightly more balanced manner. I, I don't think that it's impossible for a fiat currency to, to, to survive. I don't think that having, you know, small amounts of inflation in a currency is necessarily the end of the world. Uh, the problem is that once you put that ability to create inflation in the hands of a group of people, they tend to inevitably abuse those powers. And that's just, you know, human nature for you. So, you know, I'm not in disagreement, uh, I guess, holistically with the, no, the concept that the Davi has put forward there. But I wouldn't rule out the possibility that, you know, a fiat currency can survive. I mean, of course it can. It can be managed appropriately, you know, under the right conditions with the right people in power. Uh, it's just you know, the trends that we are seeing in the world in the 2020s is that the um, the allure of uh, inflating away one's currency in, a, in an attempt to cure the social, economic, political, financial problems that one sees in one's country, that allure is, is very strong. And because politicians are so short-term focused, they ignore all of the long-term consequences of which, you know, we've spoken about a couple of them in this conversation. Okay. Just turning for a minute to Terra Luna and Celsius, which you raised earlier on in the conversation. Um, You've got the collapse of Terra Luna, which was a huge shock to the crypto world. And then Celsius going bankrupt and hedge fund three-arrow capital. Mm. There does seem to be a fundamental shift, shift happening in the crypto space. The yields of 20% that were being offered on Terra Luna, we now know that 
that was not sustainable. And billions of dollars just went into high yielding crypto assets have been lost. Where does this leave us as we look to the next phase of crypto's growth story? Yeah, great question, Kieran. I think that, you know, yield is, is very interesting, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily crypto's killer app or killer use case, as many people might argue. I think that, I think that money is crypto's killer use case. Now, of course, you can create yield on money. Um, but we've got to be just a little bit more circumspect about assessing these yields. You know, it's very clear to me as you look deeper into crypto yields that they are not like traditional financial market yields. You know, when you think about a yield in a traditional financial market, you think about something reasonably stable, often quite secure, but of course it doesn't have to be secure. I mean, you can get a yield on a on high yield bond, uh, which is, you know, of course riskier than uh, the, the, the more stable yields offered by, uh, by government bonds. Um, but of course, those come with their own risks too. But anyway, I'm just making the point that, you know, often in traditional financial markets, when you think about yield, um, they, they tend to be reasonably stable. Uh, with, with crypto, the yields are not always, but often quite pro-cyclical. So that's a remarked difference relative to traditional financial markets. So as an example, if you go under the hood here and think about the potential sources of yield within crypto markets. We're talking about things like, you know, arbitrage, which I know you, you're well aware of, um, offering traders access to capital uh, so that they can take leverage in the financial markets as they speculate on the price of crypto assets. That is a, a, a real form of return, but it is very cyclical, right? Uh, you know, crypto itself is cyclical. You know, when uh, when prices are down, the demand for leverage is not particularly high, right? So there's a pro-cyclicality to that uh, source of return. Arbitrage, maybe not as pro-cyclical, but it's clearly not stable. I mean, there's times when, you know, arbitrage yields are high and there's times when arbitrage yields are, are lower. Uh, and the other potential sources of, of yield are things like you know, token issuance. Now, token issuance is, is clearly unsustainable. You can't just continue to issue a token and say that's the yield uh, infinitum. And then the last one is protocol revenue. A protocol revenue could be sustainable, but what we tend to see is that pretty much everything in crypto is cyclical itself. Um, and of course, those revenues are being earned on top of that cyclicality. They're often, you know, from, uh, you know, transaction fees. Uh, so, once again, these are pro-cyclical, and it's you know really important to get our, our heads around that um, because you know lenders that are offering stable yields, um, those issuers introduce a lot more risk because, as I've said, they're trying to match the pro-cyclicality of these returns and then saying they're going to bucket them and create them as a stable yield. And what's what's really going on below the surface there? is that the that offering of stable yields and also within a, a far more centralized context than maybe meets the eye at first. I mean, you know, Luna was selling itself as a decentralized protocol. But uh, you know, if the the runner of that protocol can um can make such uh decisive decisions for it, well clearly it's not particularly uh decentralized. So that's uh, stability in yields and centralization 
what it's doing is masking credit risk and leverage below the surface. This act of taking on client capital and then investing it somewhere else incorporates a huge amount of credit risk. I mean, that's what banks do. And these these centralized lenders like Celsius that you referred to, these institutions are basically banks, right? But they're banks without consumer protection and without any central bank backstop. But they're essentially acting like banks, right? They're taking on client capital. They're trying to invest that elsewhere. That, as I said, it incorporates a lot of credit risk. They need to assess where they are lending out that money. Are those people good for for the credit? Uh, and they also, they are doing a lot of uh, leveraging because they there's always an incentive, you know, just like with uh, with central banks have an incentive to inflate their currency. Well, centralized lenders have an incentive to lend out more than they actually hold on deposit. This is this you know age old moral hazard that you've seen in banking since the beginning of time, and uh, historically, banking like that has always led to boom bust cycles uh, where you know where these lenders will will get overconfident, will lend out too much, they'll create uh, you know more debt and liquidity that will have a a positive impact on prices in that ecosystem for that period of time, but that all unravels as liquidity gets drained out. And that's exactly what you've seen uh, in, in crypto markets. Um, yeah, so these centralized lenders need to be seen through that lens that they are merely, you know, fractional reserve banks that are actually contributing towards the, they're, they're accentuating probably the boom bust cycle in crypto. Um, and yeah, they, they, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not really saying that I'm advocating for anything like a central bank backstop, but you just need to, of course, understand the big difference here between these centralized lenders and bankers or, or between, between centralized lenders and banks that, you know, centralized lenders in crypto clearly do not have a central bank backstop. Right. I think in the financial markets, they call that the, the carry trade. If you can, you can borrow money at 5% and invest it in something that's earning 10%. Well, that's a no-brainer. Well, it's a no-brainer until the whole thing starts collapsing and that 10% is not available. And I think that's what you're alluding to there with all these guys with leverage positions. We're doing things like that. And then, of course, they had to unwind that leverage and that just accelerated. You get this parabolic sort of dumping of these cryptos. Yes, Yes, there's that, but there's also on, on top of that, I mean, they're, they're not only, you know, just taking on the capital and, and lending it al- elsewhere, but, you know, they're rehypothecating, uh, these assets. Um, there are some ethical questions about whether that is a, you know, sustainable, uh, business model. Uh, but I think that the broader point here is that if you pull back the lens, you know, what has gone on in crypto markets over the last, you know, six months? Well, well, maybe even further back than that, right? You know, in 2020, late 2020 and 2021, we obviously had a lot of liquidity in the markets, a lot of exuberance, people doing all sorts of interesting innovations. I'm not going to deny that there was, you know, innovation and value add taking, taking place, but you do experience this moral hazard during good times where people, they over leverage, they take on too much risk. Um, and now we just, you know, we're uncovering all of those, um, those, those misallocations of capital. And that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing for the market to uncover those problems and liquidate some of those companies. And that's, 
that that's the free market mechanism in in action. That's exactly what markets are meant to do. Of course, we do see some of that in traditional financial markets, but we don't see as much of it as we probably should. Why? Well, because we do have that central bank backstop in traditional financial markets because central banks tend to step in as soon as things get a little bit painful. Uh, of course, that kind of it seems like a good idea in the short term because it ends the pain, but it implies that we don't reallocate the capital. We don't go through the cleansing process. And as a result, we build up inefficiencies. We build up this unproductivity. Uh, and then it should be no surprise that over time, for the repeating that process, that we become less productive and it's difficult to create the same degree of economic activity. So you know, this cleansing in crypto is a very healthy thing. And I actually don't think that we're going through any type of regime change. This is just normal cyclicality in the business cycle, uh, a boom and bust. Uh, and, you know, crypto will return, yield will return. And hopefully people just will have, you know, learned a few important lessons that one, you know, yields are pro-cyclical until we get, you know, businesses in crypto that are generating stable, stable revenues. Uh, we're going to see pro-cyclicality, both in terms of tokens and in terms of yield. And it might take time until we get actually, you know, stable revenues. And volatility for me is part and parcel of this new innovative technology. The real risk that we discovered is trying to disguise that volatility, and hopefully people won't uh, try that experiment too much again in the future. Just very quickly, Rob, uh, to wrap up here, I saw your website, uh, again, soundmoney.capital. You aim to outperform Bitcoin net of fees. Now, people accustomed to buying Bitcoin on an exchange or through an over-the-counter market may not understand why they should go to a company such as yours to acquire the very same asset that they can get on their local exchange. So just explain that process. Yeah. So, I mean, the individuals can clearly, uh, you know, go and invest in Bitcoin you know, by themselves. And uh, if they're comfortable doing so, they, they you know, should go ahead with that. Our, uh, our product is, um, you know, for individuals that you know want somebody to oversee that risk on their behalf, uh, we uh, will manage all of the the technical uh, components uh, to this asset class of you know custodying the assets, which a lot of people are uncomfortable with, and of course managing that volatility. We obviously aim to to outperform, which adds value specifically for clients, but over and above that, also managing the volatility of the news flow. Uh, that is something that is particularly stressful uh, for individuals. And um, as I said, it can actually often detract value from their returns as they uh, you know, buy and sell at the wrong times. But over and above that, they said, there's just also the psychological uh, negative impact of you know, watching these prices over time. And often it's, uh, you know, it's advantageous uh, for clients to hand that over to a professional who can you know, take take the pressure off their shoulders, but also add value uh, to their portfolio on, on top of that. When you say manage volatility, is, is that by way of hedging or what mechanism are you using? So mostly just trading uh, between the liquid uh, crypto assets, but we also do we do have the ability to, to, to hedge through, uh, through futures and through options, uh, but mostly through, through trading, through buying and selling at the appropriate times. Fantastic. Rob Price the founder of Sound Money Capital. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much for coming on, Rob. And uh, what great insights. Uh, and I think we learned a lot. I, I was particularly impressed by the um, 
I think the deep insight into the sort of future of money that you've obviously put a lot of thought and research into this and you're sharing that with your clients and, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing it with our listeners. Absolute pleasure, Kieran. Great, great to be here with you. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.